Hey guys, welcome back to the BCM and the AM podcast. I'm so excited about today because we get to do an Easter special. We are tackling all things Easter from Easter bunnies to the cross and Calvary and what it all means behind the scenes. I'm your host, Zach, and joining me today is um, a special guest, Joe Emmert from North Knoxville Baptist Church. Say hey, Joe. Hey man, glad to be here. We're so glad that you're here. And also our tried and true faithful leader, Rodney Norville from the BCM. Hey, everyone. So we are going to dive in right off the rip with some silly questions to kind of to kind of get us rolling. So first question, how do you feel about peeps? The peeps. <laughs> I'm I am a not a peeps fan. I'm a fan. You like them. <laughs> hundred yeah. percent sugar. <laughs> yeah. So growing up, you know, I was a big, I was a big uh, candy kid. So, you know, trick or treating and candy always was a big deal with me. And my parents were really, really super health conscious. Uh, my dad was an athlete. He played professional baseball and then the Lord called him to preach. And so he ended up uh, playing for the pirates and the Braves and then when God called him to preach, you know, he became a pastor, but he was always an athlete. Like I talked to a guy last night, we went to the Biblical Times Theater in Pigeon Forge. And the mm-hmm. guy that owns that, uh, he, he played ball with my dad. And he said, I remember going and seeing your dad when I was 18 play ball. And he was a shortstop. And he said that when they, uh, this is after my dad had already played professional baseball and he was a pastor at a church. And so they were playing against my dad's church softball team and he ended up uh, like going in the hole and catching this grounder and like just smooth, fluid grace threw the guy out. He said he threw it underhanded harder than the other guys could throw it regular. And <laughs> said when he saw this dude playing shortstop, he goes, who is this guy and how did this church get him to play for them? And they were like, he's the pastor of the church. And he was like, no way. So <laughs> I grew up with parents that were really healthy. Like my dad and mom juiced or juicing was like a thing and so when it was time for candy i love it I, don't know, I mean it would be mostly at friends houses and stuff like that but uh peeps i mean i don't know if it's just like because of my childhood and my upbringing i'm like a sugar fanatic but that's kind of the way it goes now i will clarify this about peeps though you can't you can't open peeps and not eat all of them you have to eat them at once, not you yourself, but just share it, disperse it. You can't not eat them because if you don't eat them that day, then they're like two hours later, they're like concrete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a kid, loved them. Couldn't get enough of them. As an adult, I'm like, I'd rather spend my sweets on something like better. And so I have a, uh, I think the Reese's Easter eggs are now what takes the cake in so my you're eyes. You're, you're a sophisticated Easter connoisseur. That's right. Sophisticated. I've moved up from just base sugar to peanut butter and chocolate. What about you, Rodney? Do you have an Easter candy that you like? Oh, man. My go-to probably is uh, the good jelly beans. Like, uh, there's bad <laughs> jelly beans. Like, the really big ones are, ugh. But I think it's jelly bellies, maybe, are the ones that are, like, Mm, they're yeah. quality high dollar yeah. high yeah. dollar jelly beans <laughs> i like the gourmet jelly beans <laughs> yeah, exactly. don't give me the cheap stuff bring the yeah. good stuff 
That's Russell right. Stover's makes a good jelly bean. They're the pectin jelly beans. See, <laughs> if you want to talk candy, I can do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So how many Easter egg hunts have you guys either been a part of or hosted? I know as a pastor, you know, sometimes you get in the role of like, I get to host an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> so. I, countless. I mean, I, yeah. I literally could not tell you how many Easter egg hunts that I've been a part of. It's beyond my fingers and toes to to keep up with. So. I, we, I mean, just this last uh, couple of weeks, we were at my mother's house for spring break, and um, I was hiding Easter eggs for the kids. You know, four weeks before Easter's even here, and I'm hiding Easter eggs out in the in the yard for the kids to find. They love it, so we do it all the time. One of the funniest things, uh, I was on a church staff one time, and they always, Easter was a huge community outreach. And um, we did a helicopter drop of Easter eggs from a <laughs> helicopter, which there wasn't much hide and seek in that involved. It's basically <laughs> run out on a football field and pick up <laughs> eggs full of candy. But I mean, it was pretty exciting to see all those eggs falling out of a, a helicopter, so. Yeah, I'll put it this way. We, we did, uh, because of COVID last year, we did some, houses of our kids our children that we went and we hid the candy the eggs in their yards and then we called them and said come outside we've got an easter egg hunt for you and like i got a text last month so it's like february and one of the neighbors it's like two church members live next to each other one of the neighbors sent me a picture of an egg and that's like maybe the fifth time since last easter that i've gotten pictures of eggs from people <laughs> they're still finding these eggs in their in their yards and in their shrubberies that is so true and which is that. why you do easter egg hunts outside because we actually used to zach remember the day when i used to do egg hunts with real eggs like uh, that was the norm but i do remember mm -hmm. one time as a child we it rained on easter so we did the egg hunt oh, in my grandparents no. house and yes, we did the unfathomable. We hit an egg and nobody found it until much later. I will say that exactly that it was hid in a baby bed. We didn't have babies at that time, but the baby bed was still there. It was hidden in a baby bed and that mattress did have to be thrown away. So. <laughs> I'm sure it did. My, my grandparents, we always used to do this. Um, so yeah, I've been a part of Countless as well. My grandparents always wanted to put one on every single year. And we would always meet together two days before Easter. And my grandma would have hard boiled 12 dozen eggs that we have to decorate. Dozen. Wow. I'm dead serious. I mean, they would be what all over the yard. Though? It's uh, no, it's like <laughs> four grandkids, you know? <laughs> wow. And so the adults would go and uh, hide things. Well, five now, but they'd go and hide things, um, hide them all around the yard. And I remember countless times that my grandpa would tell us later on, like it was real eggs. So like later on in the, in the year, he'd go to mow the yard and just rotten egg would just all throughout the yard, just go flying all over everything. Although my favorite is when, is also when it would rain because they, they knew you'd have to switch to plastic eggs, but my grandma always wanted to make it sweeter. So she'd always hide a couple eggs with like a $10 bill in them. Ooh. I was like, Oh, money. you got to find it. <laughs> so it's always, it's always the special ones that I like the most. 
this this is all you know we're talking about easter but this is a lot of the the commercialized stuff that we've been uh we've been talking about you know so how how does this how do you think this came about all this all this commercialization of uh of this holiday because because technically for the believer this is this is greater than christmas right you know and so how how did we get here is kind of the kind of the question i think because it is like christmas in a lot of ways like i mean i think that Anytime there's a special event and families gather and everything like that, there's an opportunity for capitalism, which in and of itself is not wrong. You know, people love to give gifts. That's one of the love languages. People like to give gifts. Kids love candy. That's a children's love language. So like, I think innocently enough, a lot of this stuff was like paired with the holiday. Sometimes it can supersede the holiday. You know, that's when it gets con- uh, concerning is when people don't know. I was reading something about Barna and um, uh, Barna was saying that like only uh, 42% of people knew that Easter was about the resurrection of Christ. Whoa. <laughs> that's kind of sad, you know, but that's the reality of the world that we live in. At this point, I think most people realize Easter is a religious holiday. They just may not know it's about the resurrection of Christ. and um, you know, when Zach asked me about Easter bunnies and other stuff like that, it's like, man, I don't know where that started. It's just been a part of like the funness of Easter, but it, it doesn't have to do with anything biblical, really. That's just a springtime kind of thing. I was reading some article uh, earlier today and, and this guy, I mean, he was like doing the scriptural gymnastics to get it to where, you know, you know what I mean? Those people that are like, this verse at this place and this verse at this place have two words that are conjugated differently. So it means that we should celebrate bunnies. And you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't, I don't think we need to go all that far. What I think is amazing though, is this is the second biggest holiday because of candy. So Halloween is the biggest holiday for candy. Second holiday for candy is Easter. Wow. So those are my top two as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that makes sense that makes sense yeah candy candy does drive the uh the holiday season i guess all right since oh. you mentioned peeps i just i mean i had to google this right so since you mentioned peeps we eat 700 million peeps at easter time what? 16 billion jelly beans and 90 million chocolate bunnies 90 million chocolate bunnies. All right. So so a couple hundred of those are going to be handed out at our church. <laughs> everybody gets everybody gets a Russell Stover's chocolate bunny. Oh. Church this Sunday. We're giving those. That's our Easter handout. And we're just telling everybody it's not about the bunny. It's about the lamb. But yeah. we're giving them the bunny anyway. <laughs> I would say like some some like crossovers creep me out a little bit too like uh chocolate crosses are now popular instead of bunnies because they're wanting to make it like oh it's more about the cross and the resurrection i'm like eating a cross i don't know i mean <laughs> i mean just it bothers me a little bit i have a little I mean, conflict there. take up your cross daily right <laughs> okay so as we joke as we kid what is the easter story we keep saying Easter story well, is not this. Go any further. I've got. Yes. I know we're doing this on Zoom, 
but uh, we went and did a meal at my mother's last week, and I saw this picture. She had it in a frame, and so I took a picture. This is, I grew up, my dad's a pastor, so Easter Sunday was always a big deal for us, like to get, like my sisters, like I got the, I have three sisters, and so this is, this is my sister's new Easter dresses. That's right. New okay. clothes. Nice. I forgot about that. That's I love nice. that. <laughs> the suit and the middle part. I bet it's polyester it's too. Three-piece suit. So how old were you? Three-piece suit with a big old knot on my tie. So anyway, that was that was an Easter tradition for us. Was we always had to get new clothes and. I mean, I was dapper. My dad told me when I when I parted my hair down the middle and slicked it down, he said, Joseph, I don't think that that is the style anymore. And I said, Dad, I'm bringing it back. <laughs> I, I love that. Years old. <laughs> That's so I know awesome. this is a podcast and the people can't see it, but this was a little young baby Joe dapper up for Easter with a hair part down the middle, greased down. And my sisters with homemade frilly dresses. So uh, I don't know where that started about like Easter and wearing your best and that Easter best or Sunday best kind of thing. But that was that for sure is a thing now. Yeah. And it's still like my mom to this day. Like uh, I've been like I don't wear the same thing every Sunday. Sundays I feel like wearing uh like something like I'm wearing right now, like a you know. Patagonia or something like that and then some days I'll wear a suit some days I'll wear a tie not not normally but last week I wore a suit and I was talking to my mom last night and she goes Joseph you just look so good last Sunday I love it when you wear a suit I think a pastor should wear a suit and even a tie it just makes me think about the way it used to be and I was like mom it's not about the clothes it's not about you know, it's about stewarding the gospel and the people that are out there seeing you as a pastor and being relatable and don't let your clothes be a deterrent or a distraction. And I probably don't do a great job of that because I'm all over the map with what I wear, <laughs> but it's still, um, it's still a thing, you know, that, that was kind of the tradition that you, even though, even though we all have sin, sin stained hearts, at least on the outside, we can look okay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. At least I look pretty. At least I look pretty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. That's awesome. I love that you you showed us that picture. That that made me smile. Give me a good chuckle. So what is the Easter story and where do we find it? Robbie. All right, man. Easter is in all four of the Gospels. Uh, and since, uh, you know, each of the, the Gospels tells the story of Christ, um, it really, it starts, I, I would say, it starts with the Lord's Supper. So it starts um, with him having a meal, a Passover meal with his disciples, goes from there to um, the prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a, a time when he is arrested and put on trial, leads up to the cross, his burial, and then his resurrection on the third day, which is, um, you know, what we celebrate the first day of week is Sunday. And so that's what I would say is composes the story. It's in all four of the Gospels. It's um, 
in, in um, Matthew, it's the 28th chapter, Mark, it's the 16th, Luke, it's the 24th, and John, it's the 20th. Um, so all of them have this story, but let's get to the word. The word Easter is not in the Bible, uh, and it comes from several different sources probably with that. Um, and again, this is one of those things where people are all over the place as to where we actually got the word that it came from. Some people will say it's an old English word, and it came from a pagan worship of a goddess called Asthora or something like that. And so that was kind of just translated. Some say it's like from a German word that meant east and the rising of the sun in the east. And some say it's, you know, from... Um, kind of came from translations of Passover, the word Passover. So I don't know where that word originated, but it's universally accepted pretty much that Easter is a word that we talk about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That works for me. That was pretty good, Rodney. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I think it it's super significant too that it's one of the only stories that is in all four gospels. Like you said, Rodney, I mean, Jesus's birth isn't even in all four Gospels, like to, to kind of give us a little frame of reference here, you know, yeah. so people that, it, you know, there's a there's a notation that Venerable Bede, a British monk who lived in the late seventh and early eighth century, made reference to the goddess. It's E-O-S-T-R-E. -E. It's a pre-Christian goddess in England that was celebrated at the beginning of spring. So. Easter and Austre close could be could be I heard I've heard stuff about it being like a solstice it's a right around a solstice so they just kind of right. said okay we'll just pair it together and a lot of the Christian you know holidays and celebrations came from those you know when you when you look at the solstices and the, the way that the earth and the world in nature the way things happen and the way that they celebrated the seasons and the new moons and the festivals that uh, a lot of them pagan festivals that sprung up around these kind of uh, celebrations regarding what was happening in the sky or what was happening in nature with the seasons and um, just in the way that that god made this world to divide up in certain certain sections and times a lot of these festivals came out of that and then christians because there were already celebrations going on, they just kind of said, hey, well, then let's let's see if we can make this something that we can relate to Christianity. And instead of it being a pagan ritual, it becomes a Christian celebration. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Being Protestant, being Baptist in our background, we don't have a liturgical calendar, but definitely the Catholic Church, which is where a lot of this originated, did have a liturgical calendar where they would celebrate everything annually. So you got Christmas every year, you got Easter every year, you've got Pentecost every year, you know? And so that's where we get a lot of this is our liturgical calendar that comes in. Like Joe said, it really, it took a lot of pagan holidays and capitalized on converting them. <laughs> Makes sense. So when we talk about the Easter story, now we talked about where it's found. We talked about the gist of it. So we are, there's a lot of things that have pointed to it, but before we start talking about how it was pointed to, I want to take a moment and pause and say that this story takes, we, we celebrate it basically like one day in a year, but it takes place over almost a week's worth of time. Oh yeah. With it being like, you know, last Sunday, 
from recording this last Sunday was Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you know, where all the people are laying the palm branches down because they just saw Jesus rise Lazarus from the dead. And he's he's coming into the city and they're they're worshiping him as king and this whole thing is taking place and it's and it's all gonna lead up to five days later him being killed. That's yeah, and we we talked about this last Sunday also being Palm Sunday and talked about the symbolism of that. And I talked to my church and I said, I never really understood the difference in how things could turn on a dime so quickly where you've got Lazarus and the celebration. Like it's interesting because Zach, when you see the pathway, the Roman road that comes from Galilee, which is north up above Samaria Mm -hmm. and the people that were upstanding Jews wouldn't go through Samaria because they were unclean. So they would leave like Nazareth where Jesus was from and they would go over towards the Sea of Galilee and they would walk down the road that ran along the Jordan River. And then that curves in towards Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem. But when you get to Jericho, the next city along that path is Bethany. Now, Bethany is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. It's about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus spent that last week, the week that you're talking about. When he came in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday, he left from Bethany. And that's where he rode into Jerusalem from. All those people that were coming from Galilee were coming through Bethany. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. And they're all, as they go through Bethany, hearing about Lazarus. And so when they get to Jerusalem, the whole town is buzzing because this guy was dead for four days and Jesus raised him from the dead. And now their question is, Jesus, do you think he will come to Passover? And Jesus, when he comes, they worship him. They adore him. The putting down of the palm branches was the symbolic, like normally that would be reserved for a, a king returning from victory. They would cover the road with their cloaks and with the palm branches to celebrate and honor this, this coming conquering hero. Mm. And so you've got, you've got that happening. And then on Thursday night, Jesus has the Last Supper, and they celebrate not just Sabbath, but also Passover. Mm. And then the next day, he's arrested, and the disciples disperse. And then he goes through his trials, Rodney just alluded to, and then is eventually crucified. How can it go from that big of a disparity from Palm Sunday to, and the way that I equated it to my church last Sunday, that I guess I finally wrapped my head around how it could be such a drastic change would be like during this last election, if you watch CNN and then watch Fox News, you've got two completely different because you hear like now people talking about the united states how how it's such a divided country and how this there's never been a more divided nation and all this yeah there has been it it was first century if you go back and look in jerusalem you got two completely differing opinions about who jesus is yeah and then when people start buzzing coming into jerusalem about lazarus and the scripture says that, that, that people started believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. And because of him, it says that the, the Pharisees then decided that they would, they would find a way to kill Lazarus as well. And so they, in their standpoint, it was better for one man to die for the nation 
than to lose everything to Rome. That was the way they were looking at it. If people leave uh, Judaism and start following Jesus, then that's going to be the end of us. And so it was a power move on their standpoint, mm -hmm. trying to protect their territory that Jesus was infringing upon. And they were the ones that were supposed to be looking for Messiah. Right. And yet when he showed up, they were more concerned about protecting their system and their religious order and their own place of prominence within that. And so they were just like, well, Jesus has got to die. <laughs> so they made it happen. We all know that it was God's plan. We recognize that Jesus mm -hmm. himself was telling his disciples, this is what has to happen. And especially with the backdrop of Passover and, and the significance of what that meant with God delivering the nation of Israel from captivity and bondage in Egypt. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, a lot of people that were looking for the Messiah that would come and fulfill the prophecies from Hosea and Zechariah and Zephaniah that talked about, I mean, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was specifically foretold you know, right. 650 years before in the reign of King Josiah. You've got Zephaniah who's telling everybody this is what it's going to look like. And now Jesus shows up and fulfills that prophecy. And these people, when they're waving the palm branches and they're saying Hosanna, that word literally means save me, please. Save us, yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought for a long time it meant like hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know, <laughs> but Hosanna is way different than hallelujah, hallelujah is glory to God, Hosanna is please save us, and those people, they had the backdrop of pro prophetic scripture that they had been taught and had been, I mean, this is, uh, this is 650 years with, with Zechariah or Zephaniah. Zechariah says the same thing about Jesus or the Messiah coming in on a donkey. That was, uh, that was 518 BC. It's really specific because we, we know when they returned from captivity and he, he was speaking to those Jews that returned from Assyria. So there's, there's a specific date on that, but regardless of when it was, for it to be that long before and for it to be that specific of a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, when they saw Lazarus, that was their turning point where they're like, this could be the one. I think it is. And then, then as they hear about you know, all the other stories about Jesus and the miracles and then Jesus himself acknowledging when he walked in that the Pharisees rebuke him and say, tell your people to be quiet. They're blaspheming, you know, calling you the son of David and the, and the, the Lord. And he says, if they don't do it, then the very rocks will cry out. And, and, and he speaks in cryptic language a lot of times to the Pharisees. But I think Jesus knew that his time had come. Mm -hmm. He knew where, you know, during Passover, celebrating the lamb that brought deliverance, the shedding of this lamb's blood over the doorpost in Egypt, and the death angel passing over, that Jesus, there during Passover in Jerusalem, while they're sacrificing and killing those lambs for the Passover meal to commemorate the death angel and the, and the shedding of that animal's blood bringing deliverance. You've got Jesus now going to the cross at that same time where he would shed his blood and he would become the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice, so that God's plan for redemption and to bring mankind into relationship, which he intended for us to have in the beginning, could happen. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of perspective that those people in Jerusalem there that day had that we don't necessarily have, um, but it's rich. There's there's so much there for us to appreciate as believers now 
that we too uh, have been given opportunity and access to the relationship of that covenant that God had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that we now, it's not just for the Jewish people, but it's for all people. It's for us as Gentiles as well. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I love that you were starting to go into some of the prophetical literature of it because you know that's that's something we want to we want to tackle a couple different offshoots of this story that I feel like oftentimes they're addressed in certain areas. And I love how you so succinctly put it how it had so much fuller body to the story. We look at it from that that Old Testament lens, all the scriptures being fulfilled, as well as this context of what their very words that they're shouting even mean to the symbols that they're laying palms on the ground. And so when we start looking at Old Testament, like scriptures and passages in terms of prophecies, we talked about, you know, you talked about Joe Zephaniah and Zechariah, um, even in Malachi, where he's talking about the forerunner is going to come talking about Jesus coming after that, you know, um, what are some other you know, I, I know we could spend all day on this specific thing, but what are some other major like images we see in the Old Testament pointing to this event that will occur in the future? So you, you've got, you got, like you said, all kinds of prophetic scripture and and prophecies that are spe- specifically talking about Messiah. And one of the things that happened that day, Jesus died really quickly. Normally, people don't understand a lot of times that when you're crucified, what kills you is you're, you suffocate. So you're using your legs to push up to get your breath, but eventually as you're hanging there, your lungs fill up with fluid and you eventually suffocate. And that's how most people die. Jesus had been beaten so badly, he died so quickly that it was surprising when, they, when uh, Joseph of Arimathea went and asked for Jesus' body then it was like, he's already dead. And they're like, yeah, he's already dead. It was really fast. And so instead of like the other prisoners that were crucified there with Jesus were, their legs were broken. Jesus was mm-hmm. already dead. So he, he wasn't, uh, which fulfilled prophecy that said his legs, not a bone would be broken. And then there's also scripture that says he was pierced for our transgressions and our iniquities. Jesus, they then placed the sword in his side. He was pierced. Uh, so there's a lot of like, those aren't major prophecies. Like when you think about Jesus, the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, that's a that's a big one because Jesus' parents were from Nazareth. Okay, Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. Nazareth is north of Samaria. Bethlehem is down here by the Dead Sea. If you're looking at the Jordan River that runs north and south, down in the south where the Dead Sea is, this is where Bethlehem is. All the way up here by the Sea of Galilee is where Nazareth is. Now, 90 miles probably as a crow flies. 90 miles in the first century might as well be California for you and me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's 90 miles when you're walking. Yeah, That's a haul. So for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, that was a that was a pretty significant move. I mean, for for God to arrange a Roman census to make Joseph and Mary have to go to this, the city of David, their town, yep. Bethlehem, to be counted for the census just so that Jesus could fulfill that prophecy. That's a big one. That's a really big one. The fact that it says, you know, he was going to be pierced, it's still no less 
amazing and significant. It's just probably not to the scale of that. Like mm-hmm. being Rodney, what do you got? Man, there's just a ton of things. You know, the whole gospel of John is kind of to illustrate the fact that Jesus was the Passover lamb, that his blood was necessary for the atonement of sins. Uh, you already talked about br- no broken bones, but being his side being pierced. Um, Jesus being lifted up on a cross period is, uh, you know, John marks that out to say, just like in the desert when they, when Israelites were being plagued by snakes, they, they made a serpent on a, on a stake, which the people would look at. And if they looked at it, they could live. And so Christ was lifted up on that. Um, we do have uh, prophecies about, uh, even from Job, about the resurrection. Like he would be killed, but he would rise again. He would, and the thing that he's suffering servant from Isaiah he was forsaken, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was beaten, all these kind of things that we, we see that are a part of that, and ultimately abandoned. I mean, in Jesus' words on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. So you see all those kind of things played out in this Easter story that are immense, but I'm also, like, like Joe said, there's some major prophecies that are overarching, such things as like, David as a king was promised that he would have somebody from his lineage on the throne forever. That can only be an eternal king. That can't be a a human king because they all die. But Jesus fulfilled that prophecy being from the lineage of David. He's the eternal king. The thing about a priest, and we're going to get into like the, the, the veil of the temple being torn in two, but Jesus fulfilled the, the, the prophecy that he would be a priest for his people. He will always be our priest. He will always be the, the uh, mediator and interceder for us uh, in order to approach God, uh, the Father. And so there's just, you know, tons of things that we see there. A, a prophet in the, in the line of Melchizedek goes all the way back, mm-hmm. you know, like Moses and, and everything like that. Jesus is greater, but he's, he fulfilled those prophecies of being that. And so... Um, Gentiles, that the Messiah would be concerned with Gentiles. Um, that's something that uh, is also in scripture that we see carried out in, in Christ. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that's there. You can spend forever looking at yeah. that. And, and it's really good for your faith, in my opinion, to look at those things and say, hey, like when I have doubts, when I wonder, like who could have orchestrated this except for a God yeah. that loves people and wanted to save them? Yeah, absolutely. And then there's other things that are just kind of fun facts kind of things, like that Jesus was raised on the third day. In in that first century, you somebody to be considered and declared dead, they had to be dead three days. So it's something as simple as that that I think is just a fun fact that mm-hmm. they were like, yeah, he's dead. It's been three days. And or, then, yeah, even sold for 30 pieces of silver. How could that, you know, be except other than Judas betrayal and he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You know, there's just lots of stuff that is there. Nuggets yeah. of truth. Oh yeah. And I love um, even stuff. The ones that I was thinking about were, like you said, Isaiah 53, that suffering servant and Genesis three, the, the one that is the offspring of Eve that will crush the serpent's head being foretold that's Jesus we know that um and then in Daniel I think it's Daniel 7 where it's prophetic about like the son of man and how Jesus is like I'm the son of man I'm the son of man I'm the son of man if you go look at it it's like it's the God man that's being described in that whole 
whole section. Um, just thing after thing after thing that's like prophesied to happen in this uh, in this story. Just it, it's just awesome how it just lays out there and it all comes true. One of my favorite things that I've seen lately, I was doing a study on um, how Jesus is the word of God and how we see that line all the way through the Old Testament to the end of the end of the Bible, where literally in Revelation, it talks about the word of God and it, and it's the picture of Jesus. Um, and I'd never thought of it this way before, but in Isaiah 55, and I think it's near verse 10, it says, um, you know, God's word will never return void and it will, and it will accomplish everything it set out to finish. And I was like, wow, have, have I ever considered that is talking about Jesus, that when Jesus came, he came with a purpose and came with things to, to accomplish. He came with his list of prophecies he had to fulfill and he did it to a T without missing a single one, you know, and hanging on the cross even says it is finished. Like, all right, last one. You know, yeah, mic drop. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. As we have looked at Old Testament prophecies, looking forward, not just on the Easter story, but on Jesus's life period, and just highlighting the person of Jesus. You know, there are some specific things about this story that people have trouble with, like like things like why is it significant that the Bible says the direction that the veil torn. That was a student asked me that one. Why is it significant that the Bible says top to bottom? What what does that matter? You know, um, so we'll address that one, and then I got a couple more after that. The veil is definitely a, a, a showing of the temple, which was the only or the tabernacle is is the only place that people could have a relationship with God was because of their sin. They couldn't approach God. So he was separate. He was in the Holy of Holies. They were on the outside. And one day a year, the priest could go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice of atonement so that there could still be this relationship with God. So it's very clear in this illustration that Jesus has provided that perfect sacrifice so that God is no longer contained to this Holy of Holies place, but instead God has exited the temple to become, to come to the people and everything that they do and that we're allowed to have access to him through Jesus. So that's the huge symbolism that's, that of that veil being torn is there's no longer a separation between yeah. God and his people. I think there's some significance about even the direction being torn because this this veil, I mean, if you look at schematics of the old temple, the veil is like, I don't know, 10, 20 feet tall. You know, you have to be on some serious scaffolding to even get to the top of it. So the fact that it's torn top to bottom is this reminder that it can't go the other way. You know, and, and it's not this like cheap fabric either. It's this like handwoven, super thick. It's like trying to tear a phone book in half. You know, it's it's not something you're just going to do with your bare hands, right? And so I thought, wow, that's pretty significant to think about. This could not have happened any other way than for the Lord to have torn it from top to bottom. Yeah, so. We talk a lot about here at our church. We talk a lot about that. You know, we are now the temple of God that, you know, God is not dwelling in a house made by men, but he's now taken up residence within us. And I love what Rodney just mm -hmm. said. It's exactly true that uh, this is it's not just symbolic. It is symbolic, but it's 
a fact. This is what's happened. You know, it's it is symbolic, but it also is reality. <laughs> yeah. You know, Jesus has left the building. Christ made that possible. God is now no longer contained within the Holy of Holies. He's now, and and part of me thinks, you know, he had he had already left a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, definitely the hand of God was taken off the nation of Israel, you know, when when they are, are conquered by the Syrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, when they have become subjects now and are having to pay tribute, you know, to keep these foreign nations. And eventually they end up being conquered. You know, you read about Daniel being carried off and Nebuchadnezzar and those other foreign countries. I think that God had already left the building in, in a lot of respects. But this is all, it's like the personification. This is, it's official. You know, we are now in a new era, a new chapter, a new beginning that God is now seeking, you know, to dwell within man. And, you know, scripture says in the fullness of time. I love that saying, in the fullness of time. And you, you see a lot of things that have to get to a certain point. Uh, for instance, like the Roman roads. The, the system that they developed, for whatever reason, God said that this is the moment when the time is right. This is the moment when the Lamb of God will come and when the Son of God would, would take that place and shed his blood and then usher in this new uh, reality for all of us that it's no longer about our, uh, it's no longer about us taking that animal you know for a temporary covering this is sin being dealt with once and for all and mm. for god making a way for us to join christ in his death burial and resurrection be indwelt by the spirit of god and for us not to go to a temple to try to get a temporary you know dispensation but to be able to have once and for all the temple of god become within us that, that we are now his, his workmanship and we've joined Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that, we have life. Yeah. And the, the Holy of Holies too was not for the containment of God. Maybe I misspoke there in, in the sense, it was for the protection of the people. Mm -hmm. They were terrified of the presence of God. He was holy and they were not. And so, I mean, when the priest went in there once he year, they tied a rope to his leg so that if there was any sin whatsoever within him, they could pull out his dead body. I mean, that, that is terrifying at how holy God is and how we're not. Um, and the beauty of this is that, that um, through Christ, with that, you know, with the, the covering of his blood, we were able to have this relationship with God that we were no, you know, not able to before because of that terrifying holiness that he has. So there is this, um, the imagery that you guys are reminding me of is, I know we talked about this a little bit, where we keep talking about the sacrificial lamb. And for those that aren't um, believers that take a second to listen to this, I want to say more about that. So this image comes from the book of Leviticus in the, um, in the Old Testament. You know, that's where we get really into the details of it. I think it may have come about a little bit before then. But, uh, and where we see that once a year, these people have to go and 
through the priest's workings, provide a sacrifice through two different lambs. One of them is going to be the one that is killed and given on the altar. And the other one is supposed to be the scapegoat. Significance of this is that there's a penalty for sin and there has to be a removal of sin. So that's our significance. And so the first one, the one that dies on the altar, pays the penalty. And the second one is supposed to symbolically take the sin of the people and it's let loose to run off in the wilderness. Um, yeah, you're talking about the Day of Atonement. That's right. And the priest would literally place his hands on the head of the household. And he would take his hands from the head of that man, representing the sins of that family. And then he would place his hands on the animal yep. and transfer the sins of that family to this animal. And, you know, scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Yeah. The wages of sin is death. And so because we there's only one way for us to have our sin forgiven, uh, for whatever reason, God decided that life, it would cost your life. To pay the penalty for sin and so the sacrificial system that you're referring to set up and made uh, a way a temporary provision let's call yep. uh, for a season for for mankind to have a way that they could be right with god and made whole again even though we're dead in our sin and our trespasses uh, having that sin removed and transferred to that animal that would then give its life then there was an appeasement for the sin of humanity. And so that's the, the picture on the day of atonement of that animal and the sin being transferred is exactly the, the picture that we have of Jesus taking the, the penalty of our sin and paying the price that we all owe. The wage of our sin is death, but the gift mm -hmm. of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Jesus is both the sacrifice and the provision to take away the sin. And so exactly like Pastor Joe said, you know, we are supposed to see Jesus when we see this image of the day of atonement and the slain lamb and the lamb that runs. They also that Rodney was alluding to when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. So all that imagery is so rich and it's all layered within that Holy Week that you can see there leading up to what was celebrated as the Jewish holiday Passover, the, ho the high holy day, that now, as we talked about how secular pagan holidays have been redeemed and Christianized, this is a Jewish holiday and tradition that was established as a remem day of remembrance for mm -hmm. deliverance from uh, slavery in Egypt for the nation of Israel, that now Jesus redeems. And in Egypt, it was a lamb sacrifice for a family. On the Day of Atonement, there was a sacrifice for the nation. And then Jesus represents the sacrifice for the world. And so really, you have three different distinct, you know, concentric growing yes. circles of, of impact that you have the family, the lamb for the family, the lamb for the nation, and then the lamb for the world. And so that's why we call Jesus the lamb of God. Mm -hmm. John, John, you mentioned the forerunner. John was the one that when he saw Jesus, John was baptizing. And when he saw Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' formal ministry, then when he saw him, he said, look, everybody, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
And so this was the forerunner. John was the one who baptized Jesus. And the reason John was baptizing is because God told him, I will show you the sign of who the Messiah is. When I, when you baptize and you see the sign, that's the one. And so when John baptizes Jesus, he hears the voice from heaven and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I will please. John knew that Jesus was the one because God had told him. So it's, it's a cool picture. It's, it's really rich. There's a lot of symbolism. Mm -hmm. If you don't dig and check out, you know, the backstory, you can miss it. Uh, and And the story is enough. Jesus, just knowing that Jesus was, the sacrifice for your sins, that's enough. But when yeah. you go back and see the other layers to this, it's beautiful in the way that God orchestrated all this to happen in the fullness of time. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Jesus's story, there's a couple details about it that students were wanting some more, I don't know, information on. I know some of them are controversial and have no answer. So we can say they have no answer. So one of them is pretty much a straightforward answer. So I'll do that one first. But did dead people come back to life when Jesus died? It's a technical question. Maybe you're getting there. When he died, no. But when he was resurrected, yes. And it's all lumped into the same thing. So this is a little bit of a trickery question in the sense. Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection. But it's lumped in like he dies on the cross and people are like, this is a list of things that happen when he dies on the cross. One of those things that says that rocks broke open and dead people came to life and then several things like that. And so it is there, but uh, I think it implies, at least as you read carefully, that when Christ was resurrected, there were other people that were resurrected that were telling. Mm. I mean, that's what the scripture says. Right. So. And so there's there's theories about everything, Zach. And here's what I'll say: it's like belly buttons. Everybody's <laughs> got everybody's got one. But if you just go with what the word says, uh, it's Matthew that's, mm-hmm. that speaks of this. Matthew, right? Uh, and and this is a this is a Jewish gospel. Okay, so Matthew is a tax right. collector. Matthew was Jewish. Well, he was he was writing to a Jewish audience. Let's just put it that way. Where Mark, Luke, and John are writing to more of a Gentile audience. So it was significant because um, resurrection was a big deal, you know, for the Jewish people. They, you know, there's prophecy in Scripture that talk of resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. But if you were to poll the people there in Jerusalem for Passover, and if you're like, is there a resurrection of the dead, yay yay or nay, they would say yay, 99% of them, okay? And so I think for him to speak not only of Jesus' resurrection, which Rodney said earlier that all four Gospels talk about, but for him to speak to a Jewish audience and talk about resurrection of the dead, I think that's that's part of it as well for him because that also fulfills prophecy that speak of the dead Mm -hmm. coming to life so to to kind of piggyback that question is one of the ones that has no real good answer (laughs) and it's the where did jesus go for three days yeah tough i i think you know in many of these cases the reason we say they're tough is because 
most of the things that we talk about Christ, for example, the prophecies about him being the Messiah are many. We have many scripture passages we can point to. And so we can look at that and say, wow, there's a there's this huge amount of evidence. For this particular statement, there are few scripture passages that make passing reference to what happened during those three days. And so we don't have mounds of evidence for what happened during that time. And that's what makes it hard. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the one of the passages uh, that I thought of in particular is First Peter uh, chapter three, eighteen and nineteen, and it it talks about how Jesus um, proclaims to a group of captive spirits. He procl- he proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the truth of, of uh, to captive spirits. We don't know exactly what that means. Many people think. What that means is that he went and proclaimed his victory over death to all the people that had been attributed righteous before. For example, you know, Moses and Abraham and and all these all these folks. He went and told them, this is the fulfillment of the gospel. This is what I've been working for through all history and then brought those people with him to paradise that that that's kind of what happened um there's a little trickery in the words you know some of the scripture passages and fleeting reference talk about him um going to hades not hell but to hades which is just the place of the dead so um could he have gone to the place of the dead and collected those people that again were righteous and god sure he's god he can do that we also have the proclamation of the on the cross. One of the proclamations on the cross with one of the criminals that was by his side who did not mock Jesus, but said, actually, he scorned the other one who was mocking Jesus and said, this guy has done nothing wrong. Why, why would you insult this guy who's done nothing wrong? And Jesus told him, he said, you will be with me in paradise today. What exactly did that mean other than Jesus was headed to paradise? He would see that criminal that was crucified on the cross in paradise so i mean that's very likely you know some of those um things that are there maybe the question that we should address more than any of that is the underlying did jesus then go to hell itself the lake of fire eternal hell to suffer more punishment for the sins of the world and most theologians would say no because when he was on the cross and he said it is finished he meant it was finished I've also heard Rodney just to piggyback off of that. Yeah. That you know, scripture talks of, of uh, the fallen angels being held for the day of judgment. That that the proclamation that he, the people that he may have been proclaiming the victory of, of his death, victory over death, was to those that were being held captive for the day of judgment. Regardless, Zach, I think the point in all of it, we can speculate. Again, it's like belly buttons. We, we all can have an opinion. But when Jesus says it is finished, that his work had been accomplished, it is finished. Then I think that's that's the main thing that we get at. You know, where, where he is between there and his coming out of that, that grave, his work's done. The work is over, it's accomplished, and now... His body may be in the grave, but his spirit is still living and still alive. Yeah. And, and so that's going to be one of those questions that we get to find out. Exactly. And you know what I would say, too, is um, the position of his physical old shell body is kind of an irrelevant point. 
and he's God. And so he is spirit. And if we know anything about God, he's omnipresent. So Mm -hmm. to say that his spirit is in one place is to limit God. And that's, we can't do that. He's omnipresent, you know, he's everywhere. So yes, this question in particular was, uh, there's all kinds of theories around certain portions of the Bible. And I think, you know, we even addressed this in the last podcast we did with uh, Jason Hayes. And we said, you know, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And and there are some things that we're just not going to get and we're just not going to understand. And I think that is something in particular that's that's difficult for not just this generation, but everybody in history has had trouble resting in the mystery of who God is and how he operates sometimes. So much so that we can grasp at straws to come up with theories about all kinds of things. And that includes theories about how Jesus rose from the dead. Throughout time, ever since Jesus was resurrected from the dead, people understand when they really look down to it, the core of Christianity lands on this day, on this Easter Sunday where Christ rose from the dead. And so their aim is that they have to try and take that down. If they can take that down, then the whole thing crumbles. The problem with it is, is that the theories that we come up with for that are very convoluted at best. And often, as soon as one is brought up, the Lord, however he does it, helps us find evidence to disprove it. Throughout time, Christianity has faced a lot of scrutiny, and I don't think there's anything wrong with scrutiny, actually. Yeah. Um, I think how you approach that for a believer, I think, has to be in humbleness. Obviously, somebody who is not or is opposed to Christianity or is opposed to Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and other things like that, I think they're going to be more harsh. Um, And I am not afraid of that. I, I think some of the arguments are a little ridiculous. And um, and pretty easily disproved, but I do think that we have to address them. So let's yeah. let's tackle it. Let's tackle it. So one of them is this thing called I've I've only got two, and I and I know that there's a lot more, but I also know for an hour long podcast, right. if we were to sit here and go through all of them, we'll be here for sure hours on end. So one of them is called the swoon theory, and the idea behind the swoon th- the swoon theory S W O O N I can't say that word very well, so apologies for that. <laughs> the idea behind the swoon theory is that Jesus somehow passed out while on the cross, and they took him down and put him in the tomb, and he woke up later, um, not dead, never died, and made his way out of the of the tomb. Yeah. Um, there's some great books on these things that I'd like to point out too, like Josh McDowell's, um, more than a carpenter is great. The case for Christ by Lee Strobel. These are That's good. excellent. Yeah. They kind of address these to a certain degree. Um, let's think medically for a moment here. Agreed. Okay. The beatings that Christ endured nails through hands and feet sword piercing your side. These are not wounds that heal in three days. You know, I've, I got a little scratch the other day when I was doing yard work, it's been, two weeks. It's not healed completely yet. Okay. So the idea that Jesus could go through these beatings, have those kind of uh, bodily wounds, be able to walk much less, lead a movement and convince everybody that he's okay within three days is um, absolutely preposterous in the healing of the body. 
It yeah. just, it would not happen. And on the medical note, even when it's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, prior to multiple beatings that he endured, it said that he was so plagued with distress that he started sweating blood. I don't know if you actually realize that that is an actual medical thing that is possible. It's not just this cute phrase. It's not just this thing that's like, oh, wow, you know, he he was a lamb of God and he even sweat blood for us. Like it's even him shedding blood at that point for us. It's like, no, 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 no. Like medically, you have to be so intensely plagued with stress that the capillaries in your sweat glands rupture so drastically that it, it would force blood out of those holes instead of water. And it is so much thicker than water that that would be excruciatingly painful. And it would lead, it, it talks about the after effects of this. And I'm going on and on, but it talks about the after effects of this, leaving your skin extremely sensitive to touch. So he walked in after having that happen, extremely sensitive to touch skin into a beating of 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails whip, which is a whip with multiple hooks and screws and metal objects that were just woven into the threads. And then after that goes up and is pinned to a cross. And then after that has a spear shoved in his side. That doesn't add up for me as him not dying. Yeah. Cause I mean, like, is like we said, even if he just passed out, there's no way that he could function or have done anything for yeah. months, for months after that. And months may even be conservative. I'm, I mean, I'm just being right. honest, you know? So, you know, just looking at it from a medical side, that's just, it's almost preposterous that that is something that was proposed, <laughs> you know, like the, that, that was even tried, but there, there's a second one. Cause I feel like we pretty, pretty well addressed that. There's a second one that talks about, well, what if the disciples stole the body? Yeah. And again, um, if you read the gospels, which is our, most of our evidence about the disciples are the gospels. There are not a lot of exterior, uh, external sources that categorize the, uh, the disciples or anything until after the resurrection. Now, after the resurrection, they, they started becoming known, but mm -hmm. before then they were not. But as you read the gospels, these guys are not that brilliant. <laughs> That's the first thing. These guys are not that brilliant. The second thing is, and, and I think actually Lee and, and uh, Josh McDowell both point this out is what would it been, what would it have benefited them to do that? Yeah. Um, why would they die for something that they pulled off themselves as a hoax out of the 11 that were still left after this, um, you know, after Judas, Judas commits suicide uh, of the 11, why would none of them recant or tell or want to say this happened? Like we have no evidence whatsoever that any of the 11 uh, recanted, told, confessed anything about anything like this happening. The second part is, even if they had stolen his body and he was dead, this isn't Hollywood where you can um, dress somebody up like somebody and then do clips of them to make people believe. Yeah. This is real life. Who was Jesus that everybody saw resurrected if, the, if, if his body was dead and they just hid it? Um, because there's multiple evidences of him appearing to many people, not just two, three, or the eleven but literally two hundreds yeah. after the resurrection. How did this happen? That's a great actor 
who can come onto the scene, look just like Jesus in a day without makeup and everything like that, and also behave and speak like Jesus. Um, that kind of fraud could not have been pulled off in this no. day and age whatsoever. It does it breaks down on so many levels. <laughs> yeah. I heard once the, uh, the number of people that saw Jesus that had eyewitness accounts. I mean, it talks about hundreds afterward, after the fact, they give you a grasp of like, if you spent 15 minutes, I heard this on a podcast the other day, if you spent a 15 minute conversation where they would relay the witness that they saw of Jesus, it would take you, if you didn't, if you didn't sleep and it took a 24, you took all of the time that you had in a 24 hour day, it would take you from Monday morning at like 7 a.m. until Friday evening at 9 p.m. to get through every single possible interview, never sleeping, never doing anything different, never taking a break to eat. So there's, there's all these evidences, not to mention the psychological evidences of you're really going to tell me that 11 of these guys, only one of them went into exile. The other 10 were martyred. You're going to tell me they're going to die for a lie. I'm like, you push me too hard on a lie and I'll crack. <laughs> I'll crack so fast, <laughs> you know, to get us back on track. You know, one of the students asked when we're talking about theories, we often are bringing up all these different pathways that we we are trying to explore all these different things that we we don't understand about it and and they're like how are we like thomas because thomas is known as being like the doubter right doubting thomas is a nickname that he's gotten which is really a bad rap for the guy because he's an amazing person when you go and do a case study on the guy but how are how in ways do we do we doubt and how can this be seen as a good thing and not just this this bad thing it's always painted as by human nature we like evidence uh, until recent times our eyes were one of the best evidences if we saw something um, then we were more likely to believe it also our word if we heard something we were much more likely to believe it so thomas is just a guy who's wanting evidence is what i look like many many times i look at it and i say he, he wants evidence and what I would say is many of the writers in the New Testament are specifically trying to give evidence to Christ, his life, mm -hmm. what he did, the miracles he worked, the prophecies that he fulfilled, the parables that he taught, mm -hmm. and then how that was carried out in the early church, the success of the early church, despite much persecution and, the, and many people trying to stop it. Um, to see that success. And so to me, that's a body of evidence. That's the beginning of a body of evidence. But how we're no different from that is we still want evidence today. Like for somebody who's interested in becoming a Christ believer, one of the things they're going to ask somebody who's witnessing to them or talking to them that has belief is like, why did you believe? Why, why did this become real to you? What have you seen? What evidence is there there in, in your life? And so it can be, um, life that you've lived it can be your personal story that you've shown um and uh it can be examples of and i'll use the word miracles it can be examples of miracles that you've seen because of prayers that you've offered to jesus and they've shown you but if it boils down to one thing all of this i want to sum it up in this it's assurance we want we all want assurance 
uh, John, first John, he, he wrote so that you would know and that you would believe so that you would have the assurance that Christ is real, that resurrection is real, that um, salvation is real, heaven is real, assurance. That's what people want today. That's what Thomas wanted. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without having seen, without having evidence, but believe. And, but we still today, we want evidence and we want that assurance. The Bible has a lot of it, I think, to offer if we really truly read it open-mindedly. Oh, I totally agree. And, and I mean, God even knew this. When he was sending the Holy Spirit, he said, he's going to be a deposit. He's going to be a down payment. You will know that your salvation is sure because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you upon being saved. I think that we are wrong if we doubt and we stop there. I think we are right if we doubt and we explore. There is something to be said about seeking. God's always looking for us to seek him. It's, it's true. And today, a buzzword that we use all the time, we, we're talking a lot because of COVID about mental health. Part of mental health is not surround self-control, what you do with your thoughts, how you control your thoughts, how you um, guide and direct your thoughts. And this is a little bit of a jump, but not really. So many of us, when we doubt, it's not that we don't believe, it's that we're pressing God to make himself known. So the, sometimes the underlying question is, God, I want evidence for me, just like Thomas. I want evidence for me. There's also a game that we play in manipulation. And this is a very human emotion, but it's God, I'm going to pretend that I'm leaving you to manipulate you into doing something to show that you love me hmm. or to call me back. And, and I have to say, God is not into games. He's very, uh, he's very clear as to who he is. He's very clear as to who you are. He makes it very clear through the Bible that he loves you even the way you are, flaws and all. And his intent is to save you, but you have to respond to that. And so I think we have to be careful kind of sometimes with the doubt thing, because sometimes there's manipulation that we are psychologically trying to do against God in doubting. I also think that there's sometimes a sincere sense of, God, I... Uh, I'm having a rough time with my own belief system right now, and I do need you to intercede. So I, that's a little complicated in how I answered that, but I do believe that's true. You can't manipulate God, mm -hmm. but you can humbly approach God with your struggles, with your issues. And he, I believe, responds, not because he has to or not because you're manipulating him, but simply because at face value, he loves you. There's definitely the psychological side. I, I also want to address, you know, with me, with me growing up in an engineering background, you investigate everything. It's just, you know, you, you test it out, you see if it works, see if it doesn't work. And one of the bad tastes I got in my mouth were from a few people talking about like doubt being a bad thing, coming from it from a different angle from that. I'm not saying it, it's, you know, I'm not arguing with Rodney. This is literally just a different side of the dice. That investigation into who God is has always led me deeper in my faith with God. And it's, I was always scared because I thought in me doubting, it meant either my faith wasn't sure, or it meant that the stories couldn't hold up to me investigating. And neither of those are true. That's right. 
And yeah. both of those are lies. And so as a previous engineer talking to a campus full of engineering students, I want you to hear that you are not smart enough to outwit the gospel. <laughs> you cannot do it. <laughs> I think two things come to mind in our Thomas story and another story I want to add. Jesus did not stop Thomas. Yeah. Jesus said, touch me. That's important. He did not turn his investigation away. He did not manipulate that and say, hey, can't you see me? You know, believe your eyes, don't believe the rest. No, he said, here, touch me, like see. Mm -hmm. The other story that I have to add, and I add this because sometimes God doesn't present himself the way we want. When he first resurrected, Mary doesn't exactly recognize him, but when she finally figures out that it's him, she rushes to embrace him. Yeah. But in that moment, Jesus says to her, don't touch me yet. It's not, you know, I'm not fully finished doing what the mystery is, you know, that we see in that. And so he told her, no, I, I, I bring that story up to say in your investigation, you may not get an instant answer. That's right. It may take a moment because God's timing is perfect. Mm -hmm. he, he fully was revealed himself to Mary. And I'm sure he did in the later days, allow her to touch him and other things. But at that moment, he had a reason, whatever it was not to. So you got these two examples when you're investigating Christ and, and you're doing that, you know, be patient in that investigation because God's ways are, are higher than our ways. And so, so there are going to be those moments. He's going to reveal it to you immediately. Touch me, feel me. It's fine. Investigate. And then there are going to be other moments where he's like, hold on a minute here. You know, like I've got a plan and that plan is working. And then, mm. you know, I'll tell you when it's okay. So it's important to see those two stories. I totally agree. I love that you brought that up too. I think it's a very sweet picture to see that, that image of Mary coming to the tomb and fully realizing that it's Jesus. And she's like, oh my gosh, this actually happened. You know, yeah. <laughs> holy cow. Man, that's even another thing that we could go into. We won't go into it now about there being women as the first ones there and how that like culture was like, pff, right, you know, mind blowing. You know, I would be remiss if we did an Easter episode and did not present the fullness of what the gospel is. Rodney, would you like to do that? Oh, absolutely. Like the beauty of the resurrection of Christ was his sacrifice for us. So good news in a nutshell, um, we are all sinful. And that is clear in the story leading up to Christ's crucifixion. We are all sinful and we're in need of a savior. We're in need of a blood sacrifice to atone for that sin. Jesus Christ was that sacrifice. We believe that he was crucified on a cross and died for our sins, paid the price, the ultimate price. But this is the joy and the good news because he is God. He paid that price, but he still lives. He was resurrected. Three days later, he rose from the grave and he was resurrected. And it gets even better than him being resurrected, right? Mm. He offers you that same resurrection in your life. He offers you that eternal life in your life. Um, and we believe that how you do that is you accept him. You accept, accept the free gift of, of eternal life and resurrection by confessing that he died for our, your sins. He died for your sins. You're sinful and he died for them and that he rose again, and that you can do that as well. So that's why it's good news. Like you, you don't have to be punished for all the things you've done wrong in your life. Mm. He took that punishment. But the bonus and the add-on to that is by accepting that he took that punishment, 
you can live eternally with him. He offers that as like bonus, <laughs> mm-hmm. bonus round. You can live with me eternally in heaven. There's nothing like that. There's no God that offers anything like that. It's God with a small G anywhere in throughout world religions where the God little G again would die for his people, except in Christianity where mm-hmm. the God with big G died for us. Nothing like that. That's right. That's incredible sacrifice, but yet because he is God resurrection. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. This is our special Easter episode, and we were so excited to have um, Joe join us and and Rodney, as always. Uh, <laughs> so you know what to do. Like, comment, subscribe, send this to a friend. The more you do, the more our uh, podcast gets seen and the more people it can help. So we love you guys. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.